Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hey there, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is episode 3-14. And I think spring might be coming to Texas very soon, or at least that's what the strawberry flower told me today. (laughs) And I'm seeing some elm blooms and the fig trees trying to bud out. So I'm just crossing my fingers that we're not going to have this middle of February mess of a freeze that we usually get and just hope for the best. But I know it's a little tenuous February. We want to get out and do cutting back and start thinking about planning, Um, but Yeah, Mother Nature always has something else in store for us usually. So we have to hold on, be prepared for that change just in case it happens. So I was hoping to wait a couple more weeks to do any major gardening, but the itch is happening very fast and I'm not going to be able to wait. So (laughs) I know I'm going to start slowly working on cutting back all the dead stuff from the freezes and the ice storms and the snow and everything we've had this weird winter here in Texas and uh, do my best not to do too much damage in case we do have another freeze. Well, before we get started, I had a couple things I wanted to share from former podcast guests um, just to pass along on the way. If you've listened to their episodes or maybe you hear me talking about them now, you want to go back and listen to them then. Um, but the first is Amy Strauss. She was on she was on episode 2-13 um, talking about micro farming and small space gardening uh, in regards to permaculture. And she wrote a book, The Suburban Micro Farm, which she self-published. And well, with that, she had to, she wasn't able to do full color photos and kind of, you know, necessarily do the book she really dreamed of wanting. Well, turns out that Chelsea Green Publishing ended up picking up the book and wanted to publish it through them. So with that, you can go over to Chelsea Green's website and order it from there and you can get a 40% off discount code uh, SMF40. And um, unfortunately, that's going to probably not work after for very long. I think it expires on the day this episode comes out on January 31st. But hey, if you listen to this the day this episode airs, you want to go support a fellow gardener and author and um, blogger, then hop on over to the Chelsea Green website and check out her book. And, you know, maybe if you want to know a little bit more about that book before you buy it, hop over and listen to the episode that she was on. The other update is from episode 3-3 in the Beginner's Garden podcaster, Jill McSheehy. She is putting together a class online for beginning gardeners called uh, the beginning gardener shortcut. So if you'd like to hop over and check that out and see what Jill is going to be providing and sharing, if you're a total newbie edible gardener, want to kind of learn a little bit more, or maybe even if you have some experience and kind of want to shed some light for other gardeners in that, um, pop over to the link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, it'll take you right to the class. And if you want to ask Jill questions, she has all that stuff there for you to figure out there. All right, let's get to who I'm talking with today. Um, I have followed this blog called The Common Milkweed for several years. And over that period of time, I've seen them do hiking and native planting and gardening. And then they began a native plant nursery and turned it into the Common Milkweed Nursery in Ohio. 
So my guests are the owners, Jennifer Klein Reichert and Steve Ross, and they are really cool people. <laughs> I had such a great conversation with them talking about nature and plant restoration or well, ecosystem restoration rather and growing, starting this planted native plant nursery and taking it from an idea to, you know, an actual tangible thing <laughs> over the last 10 years. And I learned a lot. I really could have talked to them for much, much longer and picked their brains and just been like getting all that information that they've got in their brains and learning a little bit about, um, more about what I can do in my own yard and garden to be a better steward of the land and of the ecosystem. So this is a longer episode. Normally my episodes are like 45 to 50 minutes, but 45 and 50 minutes came. I was like, oh, we have so much more we can talk about. And we kept talking until about an hour and 15 minutes. And even at that, I could have kept asking them questions and going on for another 30 minutes. So I knew that a lot of podcast listeners don't like super long episodes. So I did try to end it and cut it off, but I'd like to have them back on eventually just to keep talking about this environmental ethic that, um, we gardeners need to be kind of looking at becoming better naturalists and better stewards of our um, surroundings. So if you enjoyed the episode, please, you can email me at the garden path podcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on the website for the show at the garden path podcast.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there if you'd like. And um, I'm at Instagram at the garden path podcast. I've been sharing over the last week, I shared some native plants to use in your garden. They're definitely kind of geared for the south or southeast, but you know some of them may have a broader range than that. And this week, I'm sharing native plants in wild spaces. So things that I don't grow, but <laughs> would love to, but maybe I don't have the quite the right habitat for. Um, so I've been sharing that this week. And I hope you guys, if you want, pop over, take a look, comment, subscribe. If you get any questions about anything I've posted over there, you can leave a note there too. So with that, I will let you guys listen to the episode. All right. So I guess if you guys want to first just kind of introduce yourselves, um, who you are, and maybe talk a little bit about the nursery and your blog and where you're located and uh, go from there. Uh, this is Steve. Uh, so I am Steve Ross, and I am originally from Indiana. We now live in Ohio, central Ohio, north of Columbus. Columbus is in the middle of Ohio, if you can picture that. And and uh, my background is in, excuse me, I went to Purdue University, which is in, in Indiana, and I studied forestry and soils and things like that, and have worked in various government and nonprofits and um luckily have been able to craft a existence here with Jennifer where we can both work on our nursery and on some other side projects that we can talk about later. But that's basically the, in the nutshell on me, but um, we like to call ourselves nature nuts in a, in a, good, in a good way. So that, <laughs> that sums up what we're about. Yeah. yeah. I like nature nuts. Is, is great. I like that. There was a girl, she's in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and her blog is Northwest Nature Nuts, so we connected a long time ago. <laughs> that is fun. 
But uh, yeah, so I'm Jennifer and I'm also from Indiana and my degree is in biology. I went to school in North Carolina and I've just always been guided by the fact that I want to be outside. I want to work outside. I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do other than I wanted to be outside. And I really liked science. So so that started us, or started me, I guess, a long time ago, and then ended up back in Indiana. And then we've just done some back and forth across the country moves several times as we're working on figuring out, yeah, where we want to go and how we want to do this. But we started the Native Plant Nursery here because we wanted more time for us. So being able to work for ourselves is a, kind of a key component of what we're trying to do as we move forward. So how did you guys meet? Did y'all meet um, at a job or, I mean, since you went to two different universities, um, how did you guys connect? <laughs> well, we met at in Indiana and we both met, we attended a prairie planting and oh. we met at a prairie planting and then Steve was a participant in one of the hiking groups that I led through the parks department in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we just connected because we have so many shared interests and values. And then it just went from there. Cool. And so you guys obviously got together and uh, started kind of, like you said, figuring out what you guys wanted to do. Um, First you started in Indiana and you kind of tried to create a place there. Then you moved to New Mexico. What were y'all thinking when y'all were going back and forth, just wanting to explore and learn new places? Well, yeah. So let's see. So we started in Indiana, but Steve and I both have huge wanderlust and we have traveled a lot on our own uh, in this country. And then we also, though, feel very rooted in the Midwest since that's where we're from. So we started in Indiana and then we said, okay, let's venture out into the world a bit. And I got a job with Audubon, New Mexico in Santa Fe. And so we moved out to New Mexico um, the first time. And then we kind of had this track record for a little while of working for organizations that were going through huge changes and maybe even some dysfunction at the time. Mm -hmm. So we worked for a lot of different nonprofits. So we didn't stay but a year in Santa Fe. And then we moved back to our home in Indiana and did more homesteading. But that wanderlust bug called us back out to New Mexico. We just are kind of enchanted with that state. Steve got a job with Carlsbad Caverns as one of their biotechs working on a revegetation project, uh, which was pretty cool because they're taking out some of the parking lots there uh, that were negatively impacting the caves. And so... He got a job on that project and I worked in Interp. And then I guess, how did, what, at some point we just decided? That yeah, I think we really, we, we lived in apartments long enough that we were really getting ready and, and to, to get a piece of land and put down roots. And, and, and we'd already been thinking about a, a native plant nursery at that time because of the, some of the things we learned the Carlsbad job and so we um, were looking at at a region that was within an hour you know within a day's drive of our our people in Indiana and so we were looking for various jobs and we ended up finding a job with the Nature Conservancy in in Ohio at the time and Steve did I did and so and so that's what led us back here and and then we found a piece of property and and uh, have 
you know, put down roots there for about in Ohio. Yeah. yeah we've been here about six or seven <laughs> years now. Um, so that's how we ended up back here. But also we all, like Jennifer said, we, we love the Eastern forest as much as we love any other ecosystems, uh, ecosystems. So that, that was a natural fit for us, uh, coming back here and in here in Ohio, we're, where we are situated, we're a lot closer to larger tracts of forest than we were in Indiana, because if you just go east, south, and and north, east of here, it's much more, despite what most people think about Ohio, it's it's much more forested and hilly. Yeah, that's, um, I, I've never been to Ohio, but that is one thing I have learned, well, reading your blog and um, Julie Zikafus's blog and other people, I'm I'm always astounded of how much uh, Ohio has to offer. <laughs> so. It seems like that's true for many states. It's always just about finding it. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of people have negative thoughts about well, you know, the Midwest and the South and just places that I don't know are considered flyover, I guess. And um, <laughs> there's a lot of good things to to be found in there if you look a little bit. So. Yeah, we, we totally agree. And we get the negative component, too. I mean, and it's hard to drive by sometimes the big, massive agriculture and you see the devastation of the land and going for food that's questionable and quality. But then you also see the other areas that have so much still here. And, the, and maybe at some point in the future, some of this land use will change and we'll see more forest again, I think. And I hope. Well, well, and interestingly, we have in Ohio because... I I think that the statistic is there's like 20 or 30% more forest in Ohio, in Ohio now than there was like at the turn of the last of the uh, between the in the early 1900s. So right. back then it was pretty much stripped clean. And since then, due to differences in land use and economics, it, it's a lot more forested now. So so things are always changing and and uh that's one thing that we always marvel at is nature's resilience that that it can come back without, you know, without really any effort from, from people other than leaving it alone. Right. Right. Um, so you said back in New Mexico, you guys were already kind of thinking about that native nursery. Was that because of that restoration projects you were working on? Just the lack of finding, stock to replant these areas or I guess what was the impetus for that? Well, it probably started in Indiana when we worked at a uh, little river wetlands project where we worked on wetlands restoration there so that we connected with a lot of people that were working in native plant nurseries and we were buying stuff from them for the project and for our house. And, but that continued in, um, well, actually in Santa Fe, when we lived there, there were a couple native plant nurseries that we, even though we just had a small yard in an apartment, we, we bought native plants there and, and uh, planted our yard two native plants. And then in Carlsbad, of course, the, that job was that I had was uh, very focused on restoration. And it was interesting because the, uh, the, the, the native plant, there was actually a small native plant nursery that, that they had. Um, it was temporary, but it was, it was uh, set up to, house plants that had been uh, salvaged during some road projects and so forth. So basically all of the plants that were going to go into the projects at Carlsbad were, were from the, the surrounding park. So that it was right. nice because the, it was all the endemic, if any of them were endemic plants and they were to be local 
genetic mm -hmm. stuff. So it was, a, it was a pretty robust project, and and I went to a couple different restoration workshops, and and but the, really the key was this one book. It's called the Native Plant Nursery Manual. Yeah, it's called the Native Plant <clears throat> Nursery Manual. It's really good. You can get it online as a PDF. It's put out by I think um, Forest Service, uh, but it it just it's an interesting read for anybody who's interested in growing plants because it's written written in a way that is very accessible and in a in a sort of a cookbook style so that it's inspiring to read um, something like that that says oh yeah you can do it right it's uh <clears throat> I definitely feel like there's a lot of times when people are trying to learn something new to get going off the ground I mean this is about anything um, there's not any good guidance. So that sounds like there's uh, a good guidance for other people who want to try to follow in your footsteps or other people's footsteps. Um, that's good. <laughs> a good resource. Yeah. Um, so you've got this idea for the nursery. How did you guys come across the property? I, I mean, I saw, you know, digging through your archives, just how like bad of shape it was in to begin with. Um what were you guys looking for uh, in the property and uh, how'd you decide on where you went? Well, yeah, so it was uh, circuitous in many ways, but really we were looking for certain things. We wanted to have a little patch of ground around us. We didn't want to be in the city and we wanted to be within 45 minutes of our jobs because we both were working in Columbus at the time, Steve for the nature conservancy and me for Columbus Metro parks. And so uh, it was nice because we both worked on the north side of the city, so we could carpool in together and only have to use one car. And so we just kind of put this radius out, and then we started looking. And this was at the, when we were looking, it was at the kind of the bottom of the whole housing bust. And so mm -hmm. things were pretty cheap. And one of our key components of this alternative life we were seeking was to buy something that was affordable, that we could pay off fairly quickly so that we wouldn't be encumbered by a mortgage. And so all of that is so that ultimately we, you know, we can make less and still survive and be happy and well. And so, I don't know, we started looking at different places. Some had cooler land with it. One had this awesome skunk cabbage Ooh. wetland on it. That one was so intriguing, but it also had a really junky house. And then it had a lumber mill across the road that ran generators almost every day. So. Mm super loud and this house we pulled up to and it was so crappy looking I just immediately said no and he just says well look it has good bones and so <laughs> the prior owner was here that day and so we walked around in here and it was it was nice in certain ways in that it didn't have a bunch of paneling on the walls. It didn't have drop ceilings. It just had the um, plaster or um, drywall. It just depended. And so there was a lot of good things about it, but the trash, the work, yes, the work that went into this place was monumental. I think it's definitely burned us out. I mean, this is Steve's third house. I think he's redone. And so, but however, we've got it paid off. And so this little place now is this nice jumping off point for us. And so it worked well with the relationship to the city. And that also means that people from the city can pretty readily get to us uh, for plants or things like that. And so that's kind of how we ended up here. It really was just sort of, um, it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think it that's was, 
the best things is when they just happen because then they work out and you're just like, wow, I can't believe we went from here to here in this matter of time. And I mean, you guys have really, I mean, like you said, it's been about seven years. Y'all have done so much. I can't believe how much you've transformed the land and how much it's changed. Um, one thing I was struck by was just how much pasture-like it was beforehand. And then now it, it's starting to look more like, like you said, it was restoring itself, turning into a little more of a woodland. Um, what have you guys done? I mean, to kind of get that started, how did you guys, I guess, manage the land or not manage the land to kind of begin that restoration? Yeah, not not manage is, is a good way to put it because we were busy picking up trash piles and, and establishing our garden and all that. So we didn't initially, I mean, we did plant native plants right away too, but a lot of what we did originally was uh, in, in some of the old fields that had been um, rotationally mowed just to, just to keep them from growing back to woods uh, because that's what their other people, you know, their previous people wanted to do, but we wanted wood. So we just really, like one day I was mowing grass that we had our lawn that we had. And, and I just went out into this field and started mowing a trail because we wanted a trail. So I just mowed this trail that my main criteria was make it as long as possible. So it ended up being very sinuous. And it, so it's, it's a fun trail to walk because it's, it's kind of like a maze, but, and, and so that also established our, I guess you would could call them management units uh, because you could then isolate parts of the field and say, oh, okay, uh, east side of the trail, we're going to manage invasives and the west side of the trail, we're going to mow for um, American woodcock habitat. And over here, we're going to plant trees. So then it gave us kind of a, a framework for, for thinking about how to manage different parts. And ultimately we ended up, end up calling our, our, the way we do things here, <clears throat> pods and paths. We have paths and we have that are places to walk and pods of places where there's nature. So ultimately over time, we have less and less lawn and more paths and pods. And then within the pods, we manage invasives and increase the diversity of natives through direct planting and letting natives that are, had, had been here reseed and spread and, and recover. So that's really what we started. We, we like to tell people don't maybe don't overthink things because you know what happens when you do that, you just don't do anything. So it's better right. maybe to just jump right in and, and start by doing nothing, which would be let nature come back and then observe what is coming back and, and see what you've got. Right. Now, what kind of invasives are you trying to battle? So the big ones here um, in our scenario would be in, uh, bush honeysuckle, autumn olive, multiflora uh, rose, uh, garlic mustard. Um, that's those are the big ones for us. If if you have more wetland or more prairie, you might have additional ones, of course. But those are the ones that we're focusing on because we only have so much time, and that. Those are the ones that are yeah, the, right. the most devastating if you if you let them get out of control. So, um, you know, we're pull, hand pulling garlic mustard and and we use the cut stuff cut stump technique on the woodies, which would be which would be cutting them at the base and treating them with herbicide. We like to use that versus spraying the leaves because you don't you can direct you you don't get nearly as much um, off target herbicide in the environment. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've seen um, actually some state parks around here have, they're trying to treat some of the, I guess, cedar and um, other trees that have been trying to come in and some of their prairies. And we've noticed that they've been kind of bad with their spraying because they would go spray and they're just spraying. And then you see some of the oak trees, which they wanted to keep, have some lower limbs that are not doing so well because of that wind drift. And um, yeah, that's good that you guys are spot treating. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Cause we've seen it at local parks too, where people will, yeah, foliar spray and then all of the herbaceous layer, all the wildflowers underneath will be dead. And it was things that they wanted to keep. And so, yeah, we try to be super careful with what we do with herbicides here because of that. I mean, it kills everything. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I, I like, that you guys are willing to, I mean, I know some people will get really like, oh my gosh, herbicides, bad, bad, bad. But I think in some instances, like you've said, you really have to because there's no other way to remove invasive species like, you know, the shrubby stuff. <laughs> it's easy to pull some things, but you can't pull, you know, a huge thicket of, you know, here we have tallow, Chinese tallow, and you can't go through and totally, you know, just chop it down and hope it doesn't come back. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And, and yeah, I mean, we would, of course, prefer not to use herbicides. But yeah, when land has been so changed right now, it's kind of the, it seems like it's the current path. Maybe there will be new things in the future. And we have seen that when we visit really intact forest ecosystems here, they don't have nearly the invasive problems because they don't have the soil exposed. Right. So yeah, I think um, being able to let more of those areas continue to grow and then produce those native seeds that can be moved out into the environment, that is a key component, too. Um, yeah, so let's see. You guys have also done some stream kind of restorations, too, um, at least the ones that come through your property. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or have you? is it kind of a non-management standpoint as well? Well, it's it's passive and active. So <clears throat> our little creek, we live near a drainage divide. That, that, um, there's a little, and so there's little creeks that uh, cut across our property. Some are <clears throat> no longer there because they were, these creeks were fairly small and would have been almost like a small rivulet that would go from one uh, vernal pool or, or uh, vernal pools are a certain type of wetland here in the east that are small uh seasonal pools, but you would ha often have a, a small rivulet that would go from one to the next, kind of in a cascading effect. Mm -hmm. Some of those, when people plow the land, pretty much obliterated those, but, and, and we can see them actually coming back as the land heals, but we do have one creek that is definitely still intact because it's a little bigger, and that one, that one is, it was channelized at one time, but we, which means it's been straightened, deepened, and widened so that it provides better drainage for agriculture. Right. But we're lucky that we're near the top of the drainage divide because nobody, as we work on this creek, nobody upstream gets affected by the slowing down of the water that we're trying to do. So uh, we're basically trying to reverse the channelization that was done to it and what we've the first thing we do is basically don't don't cut out the vegetation and don't remove fallen logs that have that have ended up in the stream because as you know that that, that slows the water down and forces it to meander which is what streams tend to want to do um and beyond that we've created what are called 
um, grade control structures, which is a fancy term for dumping a pile of gravel in the bottom of the stream, and that and that forces creates a small dam and and forces a, a reservoir behind it. And then when you get a big rain, it it it, it knocks the dam out and distributes the gravel downstream. So okay. it's kind of, it's an easy way to assist the stream in re re meandering itself. So that's been fun to watch. And so every time it rains, we run out there to check out what's happening. <laughs> it's fun. But it, of course, a person has to assess what their watershed up above their stream is before they would want to do anything to alter it because you might end up backing up water into somebody's basement and that would cause a problem. Right, right. Um, so as you guys have been doing this restoration, um, I know you've planted some windbreaks and you said you kind of had some funding from outside sources, but I mean, this has pretty much all been self-funded or are there any kind of programs for people to restore their land? Um, you know, grants, that kind of thing. So yeah, uh, we've done pretty much all this stuff on our own. And then there was one year, I think we read about the conservation stewardship program, which is through the natural resources conservation service. And we said, oh, well, we're doing all this stuff anyways. And so let's just apply and see what happens. And it's a really difficult application process. And we were there, I think, just working through the application for three plus hours because we really don't fit into the mold. Uh, NRCS is used to working with a lot more conventional farmers. And so it was really interesting to try to make our answers even fit within the question. But uh, we, we qualified within only just the beginning farmers, which means then that we got $1,000 a year for five years to plant plants, manage invasives uh, in this fence row. And so it's we're primarily growing all of these plants ourselves. And so we're doing the labor ourselves. And we started doing this on our own just because it's very therapeutic. We love what it does to our spirits and what it does to the land. Just to take a look out the window and see this, what was mowed grass turned into this magical world of all kinds of life is really restorative in many different ways. And so by doing that, we're helping us and the land. And with the CSP money, it's been nice just to supplement. And everybody, it would depend on the state, you know, what kind of funding, but most of this comes through the farm bill. And so it seems like most people in different states should be able to have access through this. They would just need to look up their NRCS office. And then this, again, is the Conservation Stewardship Program. I think there's others, but that's the one that I know about. Well, and the easiest, the easiest thing for people to do would to, in pretty much every county and every state of the whole country has an NRCS office. It might be housed with some other agencies, but, um, but they can, they can call and make them and, and just basically set up a meeting to go in and, and they'll be happy to to walk them through their options. Different states and counties will have different programs identified based on the conservation issues in the region. For example, in West Texas, they might be more focused on windbreaks because of wind erosion. Right. So it, it all depends on what the local focus, conservation focus is, is, but there's so many different programs. Usually they can fit you into something that is, is, uh, somehow fits into their 
their um, one of their programs. And and I know here they they really bent over backwards for us because they're trying to reach out to different user groups. They even have programs for for I forget what they call it, but but beginning well, Jennifer beginning said beginning farmers. farmers, and then they have some that are geared more toward women farmers <laughs> and minority farmers. So yeah, people shouldn't assume that there's not something for them because maybe they only have two acres. There, there might actually be something for everybody. Oh, that's cool. That's good to know. Hmm. Um, so as you guys have restored, what a wildlife have you guys seen coming in um, that you didn't see in the beginning? Well, uh, we've seen so many different things. Oh my gosh. It's been really fascinating to watch. And so I'll just give a couple examples. So one, we did create a permanent wetland, so it's not one that dries up. And within the first day of making that wetland, we had a green frog show up and a predaceous diving beetle. And so <laughs> that was just so incredible. I mean, we had just put, it just filled up and then there they were. And near that wetland, we created a brush pile. And these are things that are different invasives that we've been clearing out in different areas. And, you, you know, brush piles are great for wildlife and we need somewhere to put this. And so we put a big pile near there. And a couple years after we made that, I heard a crazy shriek from a rabbit who then became food for a mink. Oh, cool. Which was awesome. I mean, I just couldn't even believe it. Because we're a very uh, long along the road property and very short depth. So behind us is a farm field. And so it was really cool. This mink must have come up the drainage and then moved into that pile. And we also have American woodcock that use our field. And they really seem to love our management of invasives and some rotational mowing to uh, manage that because then they use our fence row for nesting and so we walked through our fence row this summer I guess at some point and there was a mama with her baby oh my gosh it was super cool but we love it late February to be able to go out to this field and see woodcock displaying and give us signs that yes spring is coming it's happening <laughs> and so and then one other that I can think of I mean there's just millions but this one was so cool because there was one evening I was out front and we have maples that someone had planted a long time ago around this house. And there were two imperial moths hanging out on the asters beneath the maples. And they're just these beautiful, huge silk moths and they're pink and yellow. And I think it was a month or so later, we're sitting at a table behind our house and we see their one of their giant caterpillars lumbering across our gravel paths to go find a pupation site in the soil and so these big maples i mean the reason we had these moths here was thanks to someone putting a host plant in a long time ago but i think then having the safe habitat for them and soil that's undisturbed and place where they could go find a pupation site uh, really made them just stay here and so it's been really incredible to witness the life return to this land well yeah, I, i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> and, and people that visit our nursery and and just our property in general are always marveling it they're just like oh my gosh this place is just crawling with pollinators and and uh you know it's not it shouldn't be a surprise but even for us it's a surprise how many how much nature comes back even with even the most modest efforts 
Right. Yeah. I was, I was amazed at just how many different caterpillars you guys have. Um, and I'm jealous. <laughs> so yeah, the caterpillars really started this odyssey, I think of super seriously looking at the connections between plants and wildlife that use them because different plants have different value. And so I didn't know that a long time ago, really, until I started seeing it and saying, okay, well, this plant, there's nothing on it. And it might've been something that I bought at some box store. And then I would see something else that was growing in the forest or somewhere wild. And oh my gosh, look at all these butterflies on here. And I still remember a hike at one of the first nature preserves that I worked at and we came across prickly ash in the woods, which is a native shrub. And it was covered in giant swallowtail caterpillars. And I was just amazed. I mean, we really just, it was so cool to see, okay, so there are butterflies and moths and they can't lay their eggs on any old plant. They need very specific plants. And then you extend that out to all sorts of wildlife. And I think it's really that connection the ecology of the land. That's really what has drawn us to doing what we're doing. Um, you mentioned the prickly ash. It's something I want to add to our yard because we have citrus, which mm-hmm. um, the giant swallowtails have been using, but we've been, we're in such a weird zone that, you know, we're supposed to be able to grow citrus, but these very cold winters that come through, we've, we're just, I don't know, I feel like we're teetering on the edge of being able to keep our citrus. So, and I would really like to keep having the caterpillars and the butterflies coming. So I'm definitely thinking about, hey, how can we put some more natives in here that are going to survive the winter (laughs) instead of using, you know, commercial plants. That's super smart. So, um, so I guess at the same time, you guys are restoring the land. You're obviously creating and building this nursery what was the first steps you guys did to do this? Um, I mean, obviously you had to set up a business. Um, what was that like? Oh, that was very easy. The, the uh, Ohio Secretary of State had recently streamlined their um, process for people starting new business, which was kind of nice. And basically you fill out a form, send them 50 bucks and you're done. So that was an LLC. Um, other other uh, struct corporate structures might be more complex, but most people with small businesses around here are using the LLC, limited, li- limited liability corporation uh, business structure. And so that was super easy. And, and then, you know, just getting QuickBooks and getting our accounting set up and connecting with a local accountant. Um, and really that for a, for somebody, for a small nursery, as far as I can tell, that's about all you need to do other than things like, <clears throat> I guess we had to get a, a sales tax license. Um, and, then, and a plant grower's license as well. So the the USDA. Oh, right. Okay. Ohio Department of Ag, whatever your state's Department of Agriculture would probably be the first place to check on what, what license you would, you would need to grow plants and sell plants and but yeah, that, that process was pretty easy. And, and so we get an annual inspection. And, and since we're atypical, the, this guy's usually inspecting huge commercial grower operations with tons of greenhouses. And he, so I think he likes to come here and just <laughs> he wanted to take five minutes and, uh, and meet somebody who's doing something a little different. So he doesn't give us much trouble because he does, uh, our plants look good and, 
I don't think he really knows what diseases uh, specifically go after native plants. And there's not really that many that, that are a problem anyway. So I think he, we're just kind of, that's kind of a formality for people like us here. So really the setup of, in terms of rules and regs was, was pretty easy in terms of all that. The only other thing that we would encourage people to do is um, even maybe before you buy a property is, is dig into your, the, what county it's in, what township it's in and talk to your local government officials and find out what local um, co uh, zoning and rules you might have because where we are, um, since we happen to know the, the township um, zoning guy, because Jennifer's actually on the zoning board, mm. we, we could just ask him, he'd come over and we'd just be like, hey, can we have a barn? Basically anything we wanted, we could do because we're considered agricultural land. Okay. And so as long as it looked like ag, nobody cares. Now that, but if you could go to the next township or county and find a completely different set of challenges based on what kind of zoning they have. So um, that that's something that people might want to do before they buy ground. But we, we didn't run into any trouble because we're in a county that's rural and a township that doesn't have much zoning. Okay. Um, so how about like, you know, you got to have nursery pots and stock and labels. I see you guys have kind of developed your own labeling and that sort of thing. Is this something you just kind of worked through yearly? You know, this year we're going to work on this. Um, how has that been broken down? It, it all just kind of happens. I don't know. It's definitely been a blur uh, in certain ways for the first couple of years, but we knew that we wanted to try to minimize our impact on the planet with this nursery as well. So we don't want to just go buy a bunch of brand new plastic and put that out into the world, so much of which is not recyclable, and which we learned as we took a bunch of pots to Lowe's because they advertised pot recycling. And then we talked to the people there and they said, actually, we just end up throwing them away. Oh my gosh, what? <laughs> yeah. and so and to make it even better, they, they, wrap, they wrap them in plastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of absurd. So yeah, so we've learned a lot in this process. And so, you know, there's no simple solution. You know, we started growing a lot of our veggie plants in newspaper pots, but we knew that that wouldn't last long enough for uh, perennials to get going. And so the first thing we did was, okay, well, we are going to buy recycled pots. So we bought recycled water bottle pots, which is not a permanent solution. It's just part of it because then they can't really be recycled again. So you're reusing materials, but you're downcycling each time you do that. And so that's where we started. And so we found those and they, they cost a little bit more, but it's worth it. And so many people don't want to have these plastic pots rolling around their house all the time. So many people give them back to us. Okay. We just keep washing and reusing things. And so we, we knew we needed the pots and something that would last. And we've been playing with different sizes because definitely some sizes just don't work well. They're too small. These perennials want to have some room for their roots to grow. And uh, so we've been playing to see how that goes with the pots. And the seeds, you know, many of them we have collected ourselves in kind of work, I guess it's our eco-region. So we're Eastern temperate forest slash prairie in this area. And so we collect along roadsides and 
on our land or other people that allow for collecting. And initially we did buy plugs as well. And they came from Indiana and Wisconsin, which are also both within our eco region. So they're all native to this zone. And, but one thing that, you know, we've learned over time and that, you know, too, is that these areas don't, aren't defined by state lines. And we try to look at the land and see what sorts of soils are there, what sort of plants are growing, and then recognize that, okay, these are plants that are going to do well here or that won't. And so it really is just a lot of learning and playing each each year with these different things. Yeah. Yeah. And and with pots, we, we noticed that X species maybe did, didn't do well in this size pot. So maybe it needs a deeper pot and so mm-hmm. forth. So it, it's really just a matter of a lot of observation and then trying something else and then repeat the observation. So it, it's kind of fun, but also kind of frustrating because then you have to wait a whole another whole additional year to find out if, <laughs> if your new plan is going to, is going to be better, but but that makes it a bit of an adventure. And, and so you have the pots and, and all that and, and everything else. We just like our nursery tables and shade apparatus. We just build as we go. We're not, we didn't develop a business plan or any of that. We just, I don't know. We just, we, we just, uh, we work really hard and we, we um, scrounge a lot of things. And so we don't, we didn't want to go out and spend $50,000 on, a, a nursery stuff and then and then feel like we were pressured to to uh and, and then feel controlled by that that we had to pay back so um we wanted to start small build up slowly and not spend a lot of money and that's that's the beauty of a small nurse native plant nursery model is you can do that as long as you know you have to know your plants because if you're going to go collect a seed, you need to make sure it's the right plant so you don't send something out into the world that you don't intend to. But <laughs> other than that, a lot of the stuff is trial and error and, and scrounging to the extent that the person likes to do that. Um, and like Jennifer said, as soon as people find out you have a plant nursery, you end up with way more pots than you ever imagined. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, one of the more challenging things for us, though, was our coming up with our media because we didn't want to we didn't want to try to help nature and at the same time destroy wetlands that were being mined for peat right so what we ended up with after much research and and so forth is is our peat replacement is coir mm-hmm. i think that's what most people say coir which is uh coconut husks that have been reclaimed from coconut processing and that is a pretty much a one-to-one replacement for peat and for perlite we are using rice hulls hmm. which is pretty much a one-to-one replacement for perlite and then we throw in some worm castings for uh, nutrients and that but that doesn't have much nitrogen so we also have been trying soybean meal, um, alfalfa meal, and this other fertilizer that's based on chicken manure. So uh, we've had mixed results. We're still experimenting, but each year we're, we're, uh, we're using that base mix of coir and rice hulls and worm castings and adding in different 
fertilizer amendments to try the main the main challenge of course is nitrogen so right and so if a person we don't really want to fertigate or use um slow release artificial fertilizers so we're trying to use natural sources but but sometimes that takes a little while for the nutrients to break down and actually become available to the plants right so again it's something that requires patience and observation and in adapting to what happens now do you guys do any composting on site to try to create your own kind of compost like that to to use as well or is that not something you've kind of really done or is it not big enough of a scale to be usable for you guys yeah, so we do. We definitely compost. I mean, we compost about everything here, but we just don't have enough for the nursery. So almost all of that goes for the vegetable garden, and it's still not even enough for that. It's incredible. I mean, the amount of or, it, organic matter is so important, and it, there's never enough of it. And so we, um, there is a place near here that is one county over, and they are a commercial composting facility. And so we have ordered loads from them that we integrate into our mix at different times too. They have one uh, that they call zoo brew. It essentially looks like a mulch, but it's uh, manure and food based from the Columbus zoo. Yeah, and I've so, seen zoos do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. And um, we just get really big loads, which makes it more economical. And then we'll, we'll mix that in. And so we definitely include that at different times. And we've tried different kind of brews that they have since we're not doing anything conventional, it takes a lot of playing over time just to see what works best. Yeah. And the thing that tends to, I think that most of us tend to do that are growing things is, is how, and especially in pots is end up with a mix that's, that doesn't drain fast enough. And then you end up with waterlogging issues. So mm-hmm. that, that's the thing that I, I think as a person's mixing up media, you're thinking, oh gosh, this needs more uh, this, this, this needs more substance, but really what we're finding is, is you need a lot better drainage and more frequent watering, which is kind of a pain because you don't want to water every day, but, but growing in pots is challenging. So especially if you don't have a controlled environment, like a greenhouse with a, with, with watering on timers and stuff. So that can be a challenge, but again, it's, it's something that we feel is worth the extra effort because we're, we're trying to, to limit our resource use. Right. And so I guess you guys are out hand watering or doing yep. it all yourself. Okay. <laughs> we're hand watering with, and we have hoses and we've tried some other systems uh, with just mixed results. And so far hand watering has just been the best because so many different plants have different water requirements. And so we will, group those together but then it also depends on if it's a fast growing plant or a slow growing plant because the fast ones will have already filled out the pot and need a lot more water and so it's just it's something that's nice since we are small we can really monitor these things and look and we just feel like we're learning something new every year there's so much to know and these plants are used to growing and obviously yes a different environment than a plastic pot and so to be able to make them happy for a season, it's really nice to get up close and personal and see them and not be as removed as we are sometimes when we've set up more automatic things. But I, there's definitely a place for that. And I can see us 
working on that more in the future too, since we do like to hike and explore and get out into the world. It's really an interesting balance to have such a place-based business with our love of traveling. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. uh, Definitely having, I like you said, going out and being in the garden and watering and seeing it on a daily basis. But yeah, having a automatic watering is very helpful. <laughs> so, um, so I guess some of the stock, tell me about what the plants are. What are your, I mean, maybe a little bit of each kind of layer, your trees and shrubs and uh, herbaceous. What are you guys growing? Yeah. So we're growing all kinds of things. I think we first started with prairie plants and We started with that just because we were looking for pollinators, uh, different plants that would help pollinators. And, you know, you think immediately, oh, wildflowers, that's what we need to do. And wildflowers in the woods are a lot harder than prairie plants to Mm -hmm. grow. And so you find them much less frequently in the world. And even if you get the seeds, which we've definitely had seeds, and we've had really hard time getting them to germinate because they're Uh, just their needs are so different. And it's usually this relationship between the seeds and maybe ants who are then burying the seeds and put it in this perfect little zone to uh, grow. And so we, that's so far something that we're still learning. And so we started with prairie plants, which have still different requirements for the seeds, but it's easier. Oh, they need cold moist on these seeds for 30 days, or they need 60 days. And Mm -hmm. so then we'll just get them moist and then we put them in there. But A lot of these prairie plants here that people really like um, are things like Blazing Star and Purple Coneflower, Rattlesnake Master, different sunflowers, milkweeds. And so these are all really great uh, for pollinators and they also serve as host plants. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't think about and we didn't either for a long time is the super importance of woody plants as Paul as um, as nectar sources mm-hmm. and so we've really worked on growing those as well we don't really want to be a tree nursery we have one near us here and we have always just been kind of really drawn to shrubs and that's an interesting world in itself because to find native shrubs is difficult and you know right around us on our road we definitely have some natives that have held their own amongst these fence rows but in a lot of the woods where uh conventional ag has gotten going the native shrub layer is just gone Mm -hmm. it's just not here period so there's no seeds and so things like that um, that we're growing and that are doing well and that people are super interested in is staghorn sumac that's one um the the blooms attract an incredible amount of pollinators and it's put on fruits within the first couple years and it's just been feeding the birds all winter, which is really cool to watch. We want to grow some of the other sumacs as well if we can get, find some seeds for them. So we have some growing here. They're just not seeding yet, but um, like some things to replace the burning bush that's so common around here would be our Eastern Wahoo. And there's some on our road and it has these beautiful orange seeds. It's a more difficult one to germinate. So we just keep playing with some of those. What are some others that you can think of right off? Do you have some at the top of your head? Uh, well, we, uh, we've had really good luck propagating button bush, which is a native 
Yeah. Oh yeah, love it in fish. Yeah. In, in swamps a lot, but all, it, it's pretty adaptable to uh, areas that aren't wet too. So that's a nice one to have because then anybody, but anybody can have success with it in their landscape. And um, various viburnums we've had some luck with, and we'd like to do more of. Um, native honeysuckles we'd like to do to obviously provide an alternative to um, invasive honeysuckles that are actually still sold in a lot of places. But just got banned in Ohio. Yeah, we good. Had, <laughs> uh, Cal Repair or Brad Repair and and uh, Bush Honeysuckle and some others were recently outlawed. And it was interesting because somebody posted it on Facebook and it was kind of disappointing because uh, a lot of people, I guess it's understandable, couldn't understand what the problem was and and, um, you know, we're defending these plants because they're pretty or whatever. And you know, I, I always tell people for any um, invasive non-native landscape shrub that you can mention, there is a better native alternative. And, and the problem is getting those. They're not, not very many people are are growing the native shrubs and making them available to people. So you can't blame people for not buying something that's not available. Right. So that's, why, that's why we want to focus on shrubs because a lot of people are doing trees. So we can let them do trees and we'll do shrubs. We do some trees that we really like, like Kentucky coffee tree and um, American plum we've done. Which is kind of a small tree. Yeah, yeah, it's a small tree, yeah. yeah. And so we, I guess we reserve growing trees that, we just do that for ones that we really have fun with and mm -hmm. and and because you can't do everything and growing trees gets to be more challenging too because then you, then you end up with three gallon pots and you need a lot more media and then the media supplies that we use are are not the cheapest so that becomes a challenge to make money on those so we we fo we want to focus have and we'll continue to focus on native shrubs now, do you guys grow any hawthorns? Because that's that's one thing I'm interested in, and we have a hard time finding our hawthorns. We we don't, and and mainly because, well, you can usually find those through your local soil and water conservation district, which is usually in the same building as the NRCS office that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, because um, we actually planted some here. It came as part of a bird packet. That they oh, okay. Yeah, and, and and the other thing is, I don't know about where you're at, but in Ohio, there's like 50 species of hawthorn, and nobody can agree on if they're hybrid <laughs> or not. And so, if it's like that, we don't even want to. Okay, I see. It have to be. It have to be. We if we wanted to do it, we'd have to go to the the best botanist around and say, hey is this what it is? And usually they're hesitant to, to even say, right. Down, Cause nobody <laughs> wants to get blamed later, but, um, and, and so we haven't done Hawthorne, but maybe you guys have, do you have a different scenario down there where you have, it's more clear which ones are native? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, well, parsley Hawthorne's pretty easy to tell. Um, and then there's, yeah, we have a couple different, uh, ones that I know of, and I'm sure there are more than what I know of and familiar with. Um, but yeah, you just, I just don't come across them in, in nurseries uh, that often. Um, I think parsley is probably the one you'll see the most, but I don't know. I just like to see different things and, and add, you know, in a, it's a little bit of that collector mentality too. Like I went all of that. <laughs> right. So, right. well, yeah, see, that's exactly it is so many of these native 
I mean, that's why we can't, we don't get upset with people when they get upset about the honeysuckle because they don't even know about half of these other plants that exist in the world because they're just not available anywhere. They're very difficult to find. And so that's, I think, a, it's a, a burgeoning market. I think there's going to be a lot more people interested in these plants over time, and there needs to be a lot more people wanting to grow them to get them out into the world. Yeah. So, I mean, people are coming to your nursery. What I mean, you said a lot of people are interested in the coneflower and these prairie pollinator plants. Has anybody come up to you guys wanting something just totally weird that you're like, hmm, maybe we should try to grow that? Or people just come in looking for... I guess, what are people looking for? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've had people come here definitely seeking out the American plum, which is very cool because that is a, it's a great pollinator plant. It's beautiful and it produces fruits that animals use, but also that people can use. And mm -hmm. so we've grown more native edibles, things also like Jerusalem artichokes. And a lot of those moved out really quickly. People were interested in native edible plants. There's, you know, with this local foods movement, there seems to be a lot of people thinking, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. And so um, they've come to us for that as well as uh, milkweeds because a lot of people are raising monarchs. They're trying to help them. And so then they run out of milkweeds and yeah. they come and want those. But honestly, a lot of people come here. They know they want to help wildlife. They want to help this planet. They want to help their vegetables grow, but they don't know anything about these plants. And so they just come to us and they kind of look at us and say, help me, please. And so we, we talk them through, okay, well, what kind of site is it that you have? What are your soils like? Do you have sun? Do you have shade? And I'm, they really need a lot of guidance because these are just completely unfamiliar plants. And so then us knowing a little bit about, okay, well, these bloom really early these bloom mid-season and these bloom really late. We try to steer people into getting some of all those different things so that you can be feeding these pollinators through the whole season. I had someone tell me at the end of last year, they had all of these bees piled onto the, the marigolds that they were growing in their garden. And they thought it was really cool. And it it is to see that, but those marigolds were offering zero food. So the only reason those these were on there was because it was one of those really odd kind of warm days, super late in the season. And if you don't have a bunch of the late blooming native plants, then those bees had no food, none. And so we try to talk a lot about that. And it's just fascinating, I think, to see people's eyes change as they learn about these relationships and, and that there's this whole other world of plants that they can dive into, just like you with your interest. Okay, hawthorns are cool. I want them all. And so then I think we get a lot of that here. Oh, well, I need this and I need this. <laughs> and, and that's great because it's multifunctional then. It makes people happy and it helps the planet. Oh, that's great. That's good. Uh, do you guys have handouts or classes or anything like that? Or is it something you guys have maybe think about developing in the future? So we have our plant list and we offer some different things on there. And then mostly when people come to our nursery, they are, I mean, it is not uncommon for people to spend two hours with us. So they're kind of getting uh, their own workshop. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have definitely talked about offering some here over time. We haven't done that yet. We go out into the world here in Ohio and we do presentations at different sorts of gardening conferences or wildlife conferences. And that's the way we've shared so far or via our blog. 
And so we're just, we're kind of seeing what happens with time, but workshops, I think is something that we're interested in. Both of us have been educators for a really long time and it's something that we have fun with and we love interacting with people. So I can see that being a bigger piece of it as we go on. Yeah, and we, we're careful about uh, delving into developing mater uh, educational materials because as you know, then you end up at more spending more time at the computer. Yeah. And I know we, we've tacked up a lot of um, written material like plant lists and stuff around our nursery and people just don't tend to look at it. I think we're in a culture now where people really I, I think they're consuming information in different ways. And so, mm -hmm. so we don't really want to spend a horde of time developing, sitting in front of the computer, developing materials that then need updated every year. Um, and so we tend to refer a lot to Xerces Society because they have so many awesome handouts already uh, for pollinators and whatnot. And I mean, they're really one of the best, I think they're the best invertebrate conservation organization that I've ever seen. And, you know, if you're conserving invertebrates, so insects, you're going to be conserving plants and then also the higher orders of life that are feeding on those insects. So it seems like a really nice place to start. Yeah. And I think with the handouts too, that most that's going to end up in the trash or maybe yeah. the recycling. So yeah. <laughs> you're probably <laughs> saving a step there. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, most people that are younger than us uh, are, are just going to go to their phone and, and, and Google things. So that that's what I rely on. And if, if somebody really pushes, we'll, we can, we'll send them an email with additional information mm -hmm. uh, okay. or more in a one-on-one. -on -one. Right. Um, well, I think we can switch over maybe a little bit and talk about your personal gardens, like your edible garden. And I mean, if you want to talk about that a little bit, do you guys grow a lot of your own food um, or yeah. <laughs> yes, we, do. we grow a lot of our own vegetables and fruits. And so we do. Um, so on fruits, I'd say we're a little shy yet because we planted a bunch of fruit trees when we moved here and the apples are still working on producing, but we got a great pear harvest this past year and our peaches did fabulous and right. the grapes did great. And then our vegetable garden is much of your typical vegetables that you grow. And so I'd say throughout the year, we pretty much, since we've been here, have never bought tomatoes or onions peppers, potatoes. garlic, potatoes, what else? Greens. Greens, right. And we're growing so many of those. Dry beans, we're still supplementing by buying some dry beans, but we're growing more and more of those every year because we eat so many. And it's, it's really, it's great because we know exactly what goes onto the food. We don't really do anything with our garden other than add organic matter to the beds as we have it. And then plant the plants, and then let all of the natural world do its magic on those plants. So we'll, we will weed every now and again uh, just to keep it back. But it seems like we plant so densely now with our actual vegetables or fruits, and then we have maybe a cover crop of crimson clover. And since we have so many native plants around the garden, we don't pull those. If they start germinating in the garden, we just let them grow. Okay. And so then it's bringing all of these pollinators directly next to all these other vegetables and, and as well as the predaceous insects that feed on the pests. And so, 
you know, a lot of people till Crimson Clover under, and we have just, we've not done that. It's been interesting to see. Steve's a soil scientist, and so I've learned a lot about soils because I really didn't know much about it other than it's super important, but soils were quite complex when I would try to teach kiddos about it. And so he's got this great underlying knowledge about it. And we really started thinking about the soil food web and not wanting to disturb it. And so we really, we never till, we just add organic matter, we'll grow our cover crops on it. And then I'll sometimes just cut the cover crop with hand shears or I'll fold it over or I make little holes in it to plant the tomatoes and peppers. And then the soil's never exposed. I guess that's become kind of our measure is to not leave our soil exposed. And we still have work to do. There's definitely beds out in the garden this year that are exposed because timing is interesting. Okay, well, this crop's coming out, but there's not quite enough time to get something growing again. And so that's why we kind of mix everything together. That seems to help a lot. So you guys aren't putting a ton of mulch or you're just letting the vegetation act as the mulch instead of, right? Yes, exactly. Letting the vegetation act as the mulch. That's really what we're doing. And it's a lot of it came to as uh, needing the labor to be less. Uh, The garden used to take monumental efforts to have it look a certain way or become a certain thing. And we just don't have that kind of time. And so we thought, well, how can we do this differently? And it's interesting because as we've let it do that, the people that visit our nursery always stop at the garden fence and they're like, my, what a beautiful garden you have. This is <laughs> And so it's pretty cool because it requires less effort and it's actually better for the vegetables. I mean, we have so much food out there every year. We are loaded up. We have a little basement root cellar that was here when we moved here. So we load that thing up and we have some freezers and we feel pretty secure in our food. Well, in, in gardening, I've over the years have, you know, it's interesting to read articles about pruning tomatoes and and micromanaging tomatoes and all that. But really, in my experience, it doesn't matter what you do, you end up with tomato diseases and a whole bunch of tomatoes. So right, right. <laughs> well, you know, way more tomatoes than you could ever use, and even if you do nothing except plant tomatoes and walk away. So, so for us, it's not really worth. Um, we are we're too busy plus it's not it's not something we want to spend our time on micromanaging individual plants yeah i see a lot of people get worked up about blights or whatever on tomatoes or yes and things like that i'm just like i don't know i get plenty of tomatoes and mine yeah they look crappy at the end of the season but they're not meant to last all year <laughs> so anybody, i don't know has anybody ever met anybody that ran out of tomatoes I don't know. And it's like that with zucchini. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, we just let, and same with, I I mean, the tomato hornworms, as I think we've kind of communicated about that. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful caterpillars and these really beautiful mobs. And we have so many tomato plants. And so, yeah, they'll eat some leaves off of them, but we'll just, they eat and we eat and we're all fine. So we just never kill them. And it's cool. We've recruited some new people this year into protecting the hornworms because they had no idea that they turned into these beautiful moths and they just thought oh my tomato plants are disappearing but then we talked about it and so they just picked a couple plants and moved them all to those plants and then all was well in the world and they're like oh it's so cool it made them feel happy (laughs) yeah it it just takes a little bit of a 
reframing of your mind sometimes to think about, okay, well, how can I make this work for both of us? So, and I'm slowly trying to do that to kind of tell people about that. I try not to be like, don't kill the hornworm, but you know, you're not going to change everybody's mind. So no, you're definitely kind of in the odd category if you're not killing the hornworms. That is for sure. Um, I think we could probably talk forever and ever, but I guess we can wrap up and you can, if you want to talk about some other resources or tips for people who want to, I guess, be better naturalists. Um, I mean, you've already talked a lot about how to go about, you know, creating your nursery, but any other resources like books or websites or people that inspire you to, um, keep going, I guess. Yeah, uh, let's see. I think that for both of us, um, there's a lot of things, but the main thing Steve said this morning is, what is it? Oh, I mean, we could we could list books all day long, but really for, for us, the inspiration is outdoors and in ecosystems. And is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. and so and, just go outside. Yeah, and, and to be a better naturalist, you can, you know, you can get a stack of field guides, which is good and you should, but really the the rubber hits the road out in the woods and the wetlands. And, and so that's how we learn. It's just time spent outdoors. And then, and then you also learn a lot, of course, when, when you hang out with people that know more than you do. And that's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's with birding, especially we, you know, you can struggle with birds forever and then you go on a hike with somebody and, and then you, you're like, Oh my gosh, I know 10 more birds for real this time. And, and so to the extent that people can get outside, connect with other people that, are good teachers. That's really what it is. And as far as books go, um, uh, Peterson stuff is great, but, but we also like to get lo- the local field guides wherever we are, because those are, those are the folks that really know locally what's going on outside. But, um, but as far as podcasts, Jennifer, you can. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that, you know, our dining room is a mixture of our where we eat, and then it's also filled with bookshelves. So it has all of our field guides on there. And I think that when I got out of college, I knew all this stuff about biology, and then I got this job as a naturalist at a park, and I didn't really know any of the local plants. And I got uh, newcombs, which has a dichotomous key in there. And suddenly I could figure out all these plants by myself, which was so cool. I, it was just a great adventure to find a new plant every day and so I think that yes getting these field guides but also um, talking with people and then looking at the relationships because like you with the citrus down there with the giant swallowtail caterpillars you know to look in a book and say oh well that's in the family rutaceae which is the citrus family and the prickly ash is in the citrus family and Mm -hmm. giant swallowtails like these uh, so when you start seeing it as a bigger picture, I think that is super helpful and inspirational. And we love to read books. I mean, we devour them and different podcasts. And But I think some books lately have really started kind of changing how we think about certain things. It's not just natural history. There's also this whole relationships, this whole world of relationships that we don't think about. And so I think it started with Doug Tallamy's Bringing Nature Home, and then The Hidden Life of Trees, which talks about tree communication, which was super fascinating. And uh, Joan Maloof's books, she's part of the Old Growth Forest Network. It's just been this incredible odyssey of reading lately, and I've been reading uh, The Lost Language of Plants, which really rocked my world. (laughs) Um, 
Writing Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Oh, I love that one. I mean, yeah, I read it twice and I feel like I need to read it again. Same with The Lost Language of Plants, just to really start absorbing because it's suddenly more than just identifying plants or identifying frogs. It's learning about their whole life history and their interconnections and their connections to us and what, how what we do changes them. And uh, But we listen to different gardening podcasts and just adventure podcasts and it's I don't, there's so much knowledge out there to get and so i think that with this world of technology it's amazing information is just at hand all of the time well i think the big take home for us is is a lot of us start out in the biological sciences and and you most places are it's this reductionist process of classifying and separating and and we've come full circle to where that's all great it's necessary but it's not super inspiring. So like Jennifer described, we're instead of reducing things to their and, and separating things, we're looking at the whole, which is super fascinating in whatever your ecosystem you're in, whether it's Eastern forest or deserts or prairies, it, there's just a many lifetimes of, of discovery there. And I think that, I think that that people that are interested in getting new recruits into loving nature and food and, and everything. It, it's good if they can cross paths with somebody who isn't just about walking around classifying plants, um, but talking but about love it. relationships. Yes. 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 <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, I agree on so many, so many of those aspects. <laughs> I know. I think we need to meet up sometime. <laughs> I know. I'm like, how do I get to Ohio? <laughs> what do I need to go to do? <laughs> somewhere we're always out in the world too so we'll have to find you maybe even in that's Houston. true that's true um okay well where can people come hey hey how do they visit you and how can they visit you online if they're not able to come out to the nursery so online we're at thecommonmilkweed.com and if you just go there then you get links to everything else our youtube channel and our blog and so that's a great place to start. And then we update our website and the blog um, in the usually late spring, early summer when people can actually come visit our farm. Since we don't have any greenhouses, we have our plants available later in the year because Mother Nature does all the work for us. And so on there will be the update of when we will open or when we'll be at various markets or conferences. And so the commonmilkweed.com, it's got everything. Okay. And people can make, uh, you know, if somebody's not from around here, but they're driving through. We've had people do that before. They're just driving through and they can make an, uh, make an appointment yeah. and stop by. Yep. Okay, good. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, wanting to come on the podcast. Like I said, I you know followed you guys for several years and I just really love what you guys do. And I've learned so much. And just as I've like worked on my own mind shift, I've, you know, just learned so much from y'all. And I want to thank you guys for that. So you're welcome. Oh, yeah, definitely. You're welcome. And thank you so much, too. It's really fascinating to always connect with other kindred spirits across the miles, even when we can't be there in person. So thank you. All right. All right. Well, you guys have a great trip in your in Arizona, right? Right. Yep. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all have a great hike and I uh, can't wait to see what you guys are doing next. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye.